came with concertinas, and all the undertakers and hangmen looked like John Carradine. It was a West where prospectors, cotton-bearded and toothless, led mules over foothills riddled with shafts. Russian Grand Dukes shot buffalo from Pullman cars. Banditos wore their ammo belts crossed and flashed gold teeth and duplicitous grins and called everybody gringo where women baked bread in gingham and looked cute in buckskins and spilled like ripe peaches out of corsets and sequins and wore feathers in their hair. Train robbers shinnied up telegraph poles, tapped into the lines, and wrapped out misleading messages to citizens' vigilance committees on the barrels of their six-shooters. Posses sprang up like cottonwoods. Lynch mobs stormed jails. Fiddlers played little brown jug at church raisings and legions of tin-tack piano players knew all the notes to Buffalo Gals by heart. A West, this, where cattle barons gathered in clubs and railroad magnates sat in parlor cars to smoke cigars and plot mayhem, where assassins in their employ took target practice on grangers and Chinamen and shot at the heels of tenderfeet to make them dance, where tall saguaro cactus grew everywhere even places where it had never existed, where saloon mirrors were an inexhaustible supply, and every blue-belly sergeant was named O'Hara and wore his hat brim turned up in front. Men rolled cigarettes and spat into cuspiders. Most of the lumber went into saloons and gallows and markers on Boot Hill. Sam Grant was in Washington, soldiering his way through his troubled second term, chain-smoking General Thompsons, drinking hermitage by the case, and wishing he'd never heard the name Bill Belknap. Lily Langtree was on tour. So were Lotta Crabtree and Jenny Lind, and Edwin Booth was performing as Prospero in Denver. Judges Bean and Parker adjudicated in Texas and the Indian nations. Ned Buntland guzzled old Gideon, philandered with married women, and wrote reams of frontier claptrap that sold millions in New York and San Francisco. Wyatt Earp was in Dodge City getting a tooth pulled by Doc Holliday. Chief's crazy horse and gall rested on the Powder River, watching old sitting bulls smoking up dreams with a blend of open skepticism and hidden contempt. These things are matters of history, and bear no direct application to our tale, but... They help set the stage for the rip-roaring action to come. It was a west of ruthless ranchers, patient housewives, crooked sheriffs, courageous pioneers, eager hellcats, leather-lung bullwhackers, scheming carpetbaggers, spinster schoolteachers, blacksmiths, gunsmiths, wheelwrights, farriers, dressmakers, swampers, gravediggers, and prostitutes with hearts of gold also of ice and iron. One out of three men answered to Frank or Jack or Billy, regardless of whether his real name was Henry or Leander. The women all seemed to be either Sadie or Jane, and any cowpuncher worth his found knew which one to kiss and which to marry. Everyone seemed to walk around wearing a sandwich board advertising his or her true nature. Card cheat, music hall lecher, Bushwhacker, army deserter, wife-beater, husband-poisoner, snake-oil merchant, newspaper rat, whiskey trader, reader of French novels. 
all wore the uniform of his station. The top hat, tilted at a disreputable angle, the garish waistcoat, the rhinestone buckle on the pointed shoe, the leaded walking stick, the boots with flaps over the toes. But it was also the west of elaborate obfuscation. Dry goods stores sold muffs with pistol pockets in the linings, spring-operated wrist holsters, and knife scabbards to be worn on lanyards around the neck. Unescorted women walked the streets in safety, but the theaters and ballrooms dripped with murder. It was possible to purchase arsenic in quantity, and pistols small enough to conceal in the palm of one's hand. The West's reputation for politeness and hospitality was based on the threat of imminent death for transgressors. It was the West also of rampant optimism, the consumptive in search of a cure, the criminal in quest of redemption, the failure in pursuit of a fresh start, the bigamist in flight from his wives, each found a fresh page upon which to start his journal anew. A world bereft of records, fingerprints, and the ubiquitous camera, and a blank amorphous map labeled the Great American Desert offered panacea to a variety of ills. Not since Alexander fled the shadow of his father into the vast reaches of the known world had our solitary planet so plainly beckoned to the wanderer to cast aside his burdens and press on. It was the west of Daniel Boone, Kit Carson, and Billy the Kid. But it was also the west of William S. Hart, Roy Rogers, and John Wayne. It was big enough to encompass the bombastery of Buffalo Bill and Cecil B. DeMille, and the skullduggery of the Bloody Brothers' heart. This was Johnny Vermillion's West, a West that should have been, but never quite was. Chapter 2 Tannery, Nebraska, was a good place to sin, and now it's gone. A few overgrown foundations... A well, fallen in and filled with topsoil and chaff are left, and they're invisible from the traffic whirling past on the state highway. But for a few years, before the buffalo vanished and the farmers took their trade west to Omaha, Tannery roared like a young bull. It boasted fifteen saloons, buck-toothed whores, a Masonic temple, two banks, and a theater called the Golden Calf. This last seated 600, with triple-decked boxes nearly all the way around. But it stood vacant during the warm months when the hides were ripe. Stacks of them two stories high surrounded the tannery itself, attracting flies and repelling visitors not directly involved with the industry. The larger theatrical troops passed the place by from May to November, leaving the citizens to manufacture entertainments of their own. A sporting lady, known only as Roberta, once rode a tame buffalo named Ambrose into the tap room of the Metropolitan Saloon and halfway up to her quarters on the second floor, when the stairs collapsed under the weight. But show me a ghost town without a buffalo-riding horn named Roberta in its past, and I'll show you a town that plain bored itself out of existence. Our story is more original than that. Nothing in the short, stormy history of Tannery ever compared to the night the Prairie Rose Repertory Company performed the Count of Monte Cristo at the Golden Calf. 
People who claimed they were present that night were still talking about it years later, after the town had been dismantled and reassembled on the south bank of the Platte under the name Plowright. Sadly, Plowright proved no more durable in its second incarnation than it had in its first. The spring runoff following the disastrous winter of 1886 to 1887 swept the entire town downriver, drowning one-fifth of its population and scattering the survivors from Ohio to Oregon. But journals and letters carry the story, and aged participants close to the principals were candid in their memoirs. During the frosty autumn of 1873, in response to a telegraphic exchange between Tannery and Kansas City, Isidore Weaver, proprietor of the Golden Calf, posted the first new bill to garnish the front of the theater since Mabel North, the Yankee Belle, had trilled Listen to the Mockingbird to the accompaniment of a live canary on its stage the Saturday after Easter. This was sensation. By the time he brushed out the last blister, a crowd had assembled, exhaling clouds of steam as they read the legend aloud. First Winter Tour, J.T. Vermilion's Prairie Rose Repertory Company presents The Count of Monte Cristo. Adapted by Mr. C. Ragland from the classic novel by Alexandre Dumas Père, featuring Mr. J.T. Vermilion, Miss April Clay, Major Evelyn Davies, Madame Elizabeth Mort Davies, Mr. Cornelius Ragland. One performance only. A separate notice was plastered across the bottom, informing interested readers that the play would take place Saturday, November 7th at 8 p.m.